All right, go ahead. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Turn to John chapter 4. We're dealing with the last part of this chapter this morning, verses 46 through 54. We will then move on to Luke chapter 4 and deal with the first of two rejections at, uh, at Nazareth. It's an incident that is not totally agreed to by everyone who harmonizes the Gospels. Uh, some will take the Luke 4 incident and equate it with a similar event or similar statements that are made in uh, the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. And, uh, but I think that the better harmonies will break them down into separate events uh, entirely from Matthew 13 or Mark chapter 6, uh, calling it the second rejection, Nazareth's second rejection of Christ. And we'll have that coming up as the 33rd uh, event in the Galilean ministry. The Galilean ministry has a total of 60, uh, 56 events. And it is, in terms of time, it is the longest period of the ministry of Jesus Christ, starting here in 30 A.D. and taking us through September of uh, 32 A.D., in other words, the September immediately before the spring crucifixion. And then uh, the last Judean and Prean ministry, and then the final week, uh, the Passion Week, as it were. As it, even that has 41 events, even though it takes place within the time frame of a single week. So you kind of get the idea how where the bulk of the study is going to fall into, the Galilean ministry being really the largest overall section, but then the Passion Week coming in a close second with uh, 41 events that are squeezed into uh, a uh, Monday through Sunday kind of uh, format. All right. All of that is still down the road, of course. Lord willing, rapture pending on the things there. You wonder... How many lessons will this Life of Christ series be by the time we reach Palm Monday and explain that all the traditions related to Palm Sunday have been incorrect all these years? <laughs> um, and that's fine. We'll see what, uh, what the Lord has for us. All right. John chapter 4, 46 through 54. Therefore he came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine and there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Before we begin the study, let's take time for silent prayer and make sure that we are filled with the Spirit Equipped to handle spiritual truth, shall we pray? Mighty Father, we do come before your throne of grace this morning. We thank you for the privilege of studying the Word of God. And we thank you, Father, that it is a privilege we have uh, in terms of a grace provision. And you've supplied our nation with the freedom to assemble, and we are pleased to exercise that freedom, recognizing that uh, those who approach you do so on the basis of uh, doing so in spirit and in truth. And so we thank you we can be spirit-filled. We thank you that we can approach the truth. And we thank you, Father, that we have the volitional freedom to be here. We have the volitional freedom to not be here. And I ask that you would reward the volition that has determined that the feeding of your truth is the most important priority for this morning. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. We got through the first three aspects of this before we ran out of time. I'll run through them very quickly. Jesus returns to the scene of his first miracle, Cain of Galilee. Although we recognize that back in chapter 2, that was a private work of power for the manifestation of his glory to his disciples. Really, many of the miracles are 
below the radar, we would say. They are very uh, much private. They are not the issue. The issue is teaching. And we'll come to that this morning, that the issue is teaching, not the gee whiz value of doing a miracle. Secondly, they were unobserved by most of the Galileans who would be impressed by the Jerusalem miracles. And you wonder, had he made a big display the first time he was in Cana, if uh, what then the result would have been, if they would have even let him go to Jerusalem, for example, uh, in order, as he does uh, in John chapter 2, to observe that first Passover, to uh, drive out the money changers, to have the initial miracles that he had in the Jerusalem area, to have a co-ministry, a baptism ministry with John the Baptist, the first of the training ministries for his disciples. Um, it's quite interesting. But they, uh, they did observe what happened in Jerusalem, and as a result of which, they were very excited to have him back in Galilee. And uh, these are the things we're going to glimpse here, uh, for instance, in verse 45, that uh, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. And so the, uh, the stories start spreading and the excitement starts building. This is on the human layer of things. We'll see some aspects in, in Luke 4, I think, that will help to explain the spiritual basis of things here shortly. Uh, the exasperation that Jesus exemplifies we're going to look at today when he says in verse 48, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And we recognize that their focus was misdirected. They have uh, a zeal, they have an excitement, they've got an energy, but it's not precisely lined up with divine viewpoint, not with God's perspective. In other words, they're making the miracles the the central piece when in reality they simply establish the credentials for the speaker. You should be listening to his message. And this would become a theme repeated over and over again. Now, we were secondly introduced to this royal official, Tis Basilikos. We do not know his name. Uh, the adjective Basilikos simply means kingish, somehow related to a king. A Basilus is a king, and so a Basilikos is something Related to a king, it could be a king's servant, a king's household, a king's possession, a king's minister, a king's uh, trusted aide. It could be a king's dog. You know, anything belonging to a king would be basilikos. And and if it's left without another noun attached to it, then we really aren't. Uh, we don't have a firm picture about what it might be. It would be like adding a possessive. Uh, uh, apostrophe S to your name, for example, and we would say this is uh, Terry's. Well, Terry's what? You know, Terry's book, Terry's paper, Terry's pen, Terry's what? You know, it, it just simply adds the modifier, makes it adjectival, but doesn't totally explain what it is. He is a basilica, somehow related to a king. And so usually a word is supplied like official, uh, as we have in the New American Standard text, a royal official. He's not named specifically, even though John is not hesitant to name names. And this kind of, I think, demonstrates a progression, at least on the part of the author, John, in terms of what he knew and when he knew it. In terms of the fact that this is very early when he was first called, uh, leaving the Baptist and going to follow the Christ and so forth. And he's very young, uh, a teenager, or if that. See, 12, 13 years old, perhaps, given the fact that he lives another 70 years following the crucifixion, uh, he can't be terribly old uh, during these events. In John chapter 18, though, he's not hesitant to name names. 
The uh, fact that he is a royal official, the fact that he is located in Capernaum rather than Caesarea, the fact that he uh, that we have later references to the Herodian court uh, pretty well narrows it down as as Herod being the king involved. And then whatever attachment this Basilicos has with Herod, though, we just have to leave unknown. But he was likely an official in the court of Herod. And we examined the wife of Chuzas there in Luke 8.3 and Menaean and how he appears in Acts 13.1. Clearly, there was some kind of evangelism taking place in, in Herod's court during the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Or we wouldn't have had uh, Susanna, was that her name, the wife of Chuzas, and then uh, Menaean. They would not have been disciples by the time we get to the book of Acts if there had not been evangelism taking place during the ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, we left off by examining this Basilicos and his kid. The son of the Basilicos was sick in Capernaum. Interestingly, he was left there. The, the Basilicos did not bring him to Cana, but he rather traveled the 20 miles, 25 miles to Cana with the attempt to bring Jesus back to him, that the son was not fit to travel. A little bit of vocabulary study is where we ran out of time. Uh, and the fact that he is called a huios, a pideon, and a pice, all three terms used rather interchangeably, used all to pertain to this boy, is interesting. And then likewise, the term astheneo, to be sick, that is without strength, and then apathenesco, to be at the point of death. Both of those aspects, of course, are aspects that are going to be done away with in the new heavens and the new earth. In the resurrection, there is no more sickness, no more death. The former things have passed away. And we discussed a little bit the power of God that is employed in terms of affecting miracles. In fact, that we look at miracles as being out of the ordinary when in reality it is the miracle that reinstates normalcy because it's the fall that is out of the ordinary. It is sin and death and the aftermath of human and angelic rebellion that then is out of the ordinary, out of the normal, so to speak, and that in eternity future, God will once again restore the sinless, normal condition. Now, four more things we want to develop in this text, and, and we just simply make some observations. The Basilicos was in a position to monitor Jesus' movements. And he demonstrated urgency by approaching Jesus at Cana. And it's remarkable, the people keeping track of where Jesus is and where he's going and what he's doing. Some of which are trying to bring him harm, others of which are want something from him. And uh, or still others of which are just simply observing as, uh, you know, like people like watching train wrecks or something. They're watching for the uh, curiosity of, well, what's going to happen next? But in most of the cases with the observers, they either want to do something to him or they want something from him. All right. Very rarely is there anyone that actually wants to learn what he has to say. That's the exception. And when Jesus comes across that exception, he recognizes here is a believer that is hungry for Bible teaching. Here is somebody that wants to hear the message. He's not here as an adversary and he's not here as a spectator. and He's not here as a parasite, just simply leeching what they can off of God, so to speak. And isn't that rather descriptive of churches by and large where people are interested in what do I get out of this? See, how do I benefit? What am I going to get out of a church? See, oh, I'm not getting anything out of this church. I want to go here. I want to go there because I want my needs to be mad or catered to or placated and so forth. No, the issue is, are you humble before the absolute teaching of the word of God? Are you interested in the message that Jesus Christ has to deliver? And it might be a pleasant message. It might be an unpleasant message. 
as we get into Luke chapter 4 this morning and next week, he delivers a pretty hard-hitting message there to Nazareth. And it gets rather insulting. And I think some commentators are, are rather off base when they say, well, Jesus didn't really know how insulting he was. No, he, he intended to be insulting. He delivered that message with a full intent of knowing that he was pushing their buttons and insulting them very well. And I find that to be interesting, and we'll get into that here shortly. But the monitoring of his movements, again, verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee. See, he's monitoring the movements. He's getting reports, and he's not waiting for Jesus to come to Capernaum. He's not waiting. He doesn't go to Nazareth and hopes that he shows up in Nazareth. He is using his information network to follow the movements of Jesus Christ and to intercept him, to travel where Jesus is. And previously we had this back in verse 1. The Pharisees were doing this. When the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. The Pharisees had an information network out there. They were monitoring Jesus' movements and his activities. Even so much as counting the numbers of people as they were going. Keeping track of how many followers that John the Baptist was acquiring. How many followers that Jesus was acquiring. How many people are going out there to be baptized. What is the, what is the response that's happening there? All right. Once again, we find the modern religious practices of churches involved with, you know, keeping track of how full the parking lot is here and how full the parking lot is across the street and seeing what's going on in these different churches and paying attention and and really developing mental attitude sin based upon what they perceive is, uh, you know, right or not right or fair or not fair and things like that. But we're going to see more and more of this. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, um, the uh, Romans... Galileans, quite a number of folks. Uh, and, and again and again and again we come across it. You'll notice, um, and just glance with me here over at chapter 6. And, um, you know, he, he crosses the Sea of Galilee and he goes to the eastern side. And he sits down there with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was near. But for this Passover, he's not going to Jerusalem. It's the first Passover he's missed probably his entire life. Most likely, his, at least since he was 12. But now he's not going to Passover. He's not going to Jerusalem. He's staying on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And crowds are starting to assemble. And rather than finish their pilgrimage to Galilee or to uh, Jerusalem, they just stay there. See? And he ends up feeding them, about 5,000 here. And, and rather than getting all excited about the message, all they want is, you know, feed us again, feed us again, feed us again. We get into uh, chapter 7. And uh, as the Feast of Tabernacles is approaching, um, the, the hubbub is, uh, is uh, brewing, so to speak. And... You'll spot it in verse 11. Uh, the Jews were seeking him at the feast. and They were saying, where is he? See, how come he's not here? Is he going to make his appearance? And there's much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. Some were saying he's a good man. Others were saying, no, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So this is something that all had to be under the radar. This had to be very low key. Any public discussions with respect to... Jesus Christ was uh, was going to only lead them into trouble. 
Then when he finally does show up, they're kind of amazed. In verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem are saying, is this not the man they're seeking to kill? <laughs> Look, he showed up after all. See, he, came, he arrived late. He, he snuck in quietly. He held his peace for the first couple of days. Um, but then he starts preaching, and, and then all of a sudden they're shocked. They say, wait a minute, there he is. Look, he's speaking publicly. They're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? Okay. And so this is kind of the third. I call these the train wreck, the train wreck crowd. They're they're kind of watching as spectators, waiting to see what's going to happen next. You know, terrified that he might be crucified, but then also eager to see and watch while it happens. Okay. Well, they either want to do something to him or they want something from him or they're just simply watching for the entertainment value. And we'll, we'll encounter more and more of this. Jesus uh, really rebukes every group other than those that are truly humble for teaching. The, the adversaries get hit. The, the, uh, the leeches get hit. Those that just want something from him. The uh, spectators for the entertainment value, they really get hit. He tells them, you know, you guys are never happy with anything. You know, just because you're trying to play a fiddle and we're not dancing to your tune. Messages like that. So here we have an episode where these movements are being monitored. And this is interesting how this happens uh, by so many different parties. But we should also take it as a pattern. And recognize that for us today in the church, we can expect this as well. People will be watching. And it may not be the folks we expect. See, clearly there'll be the adversaries watching, but then there'll be the other, you know, those that want to see what they can get out of us and those that just simply are entertained by the whole process. We're being watched by humans and angels alike. Now, Jesus expressed frustration with you people and their needs to observe signs and wonders. You people. A number of years ago, we're... Uh, Ross Perot was criticized for using the phrase, you people, you know, as if somehow he was being racist or whatever. I think he was addressing the NAACP or some group like that. And somehow by referring to blacks as you people, he was being racist. Well, Jesus isn't being racist here. And he's not saying you people um, derogatorily. He's just simply identifying those that were craving the signs. And he's doing so rather accurately. Unless you, and that's you plural, that's you all. He's not just singling out this one basilicos, but the basilicos is symptomatic of the entire group and their shortcomings. Unless you all, unless y'all, you people, see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And this becomes then not an, a guide to, not an assistance to faith, but even a hindrance to faith. Because they become miracle lusting, they lust and crave after miracles, and they become dependent upon it for the continuation of their faith. See, when that's not the purpose for the miracle. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We shouldn't have to depend upon seeing a sign to believe. We should take the promises of God, accept the fact that they are grounded in his character, and Believe on the basis of God's character, not on the basis of what we've seen take place. All right. This will come up again and again, even with his own disciples, doubting Thomas and so forth. Well, I want to see his, you know, I want to stick my fingers in those holes. Okay. This will come up as well. This is a particular shortcoming of the Jewish people. As related in 1 Corinthians 1.22, it really it is a mark of distinction with respect to Jews in contrast with Gentiles. Gentiles have their own particular shortcomings and brand of uh, rebellion. 
But a Jewish expression of rebellion comes in the demand for a sign. First Corinthians one twenty two, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block to the Gentiles foolishness. And we ought to recognize at least what are the weaknesses of our audience. For example, if you are evangelizing to a Jewish person, then there may be aspects that you should know about in terms of what their approach is going to be, what their areas of weakness are, what their expectations are, what their blind spots are going to be. Okay. You know you've got something to work with, at least if they have a, an orientation to the Old Testament Scriptures. They would call that their Torah, their law, or their writings. And, and you may recognize you're evangelizing a Jewish person, and you might have uh, that as a basis to start with. But if you're dealing with a total pagan Greek or Gentile who may not have an orientation to the uh, Scriptures at all, then you might have to approach them on the basis of, as this text says, wisdom or the philosophers, or other aspects of Gentile culture. But there is a distinction between Jews and Greeks, and 1 Corinthians one twenty two points that out. The Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom. And so when Jesus is rebuking this crowd here in John 4, saying, uh, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe, he's demonstrating that it is a flaw to become miracle-dependent. All right. We got all these buzzwords and I hate them, but the language of, of, of modern psychology, see, where we develop this codependency. OK, we fall back on crutches, so to speak. OK, and let's I try to avoid the, the psycho terms and just simply use the biblical terms. The biblical terms are idolatry. <laughs> where you set up something as a substitute for God. Our dependence should be on God Himself. But in the case of, uh, in the case of uh, miracle idolatry, what they've done is they've substituted God's nature with God's specific miracles. And so my faith isn't grounded in, in God's character, His sovereignty, His righteousness, His omnipotence, His perfection and glory. Um, my faith is going to be built upon what have you done for me lately? What miracles have you done? Demonstrate for me. Do something for me. Then I'll believe in you. Okay? And this is, is a, it's a failure. It's a flaw. It substitutes the sign or the experience or the benefit for the character of God as a foundation for faith. All right? And if you hold your finger there at John 4, we'll recognize that this was the error that Jacob was making when he was fleeing from his brother. So we turn back to Genesis 26. And we see the, uh, or I'm sorry, 28. And we see the, short, the failure on Jacob's part. And he's fleeing the land of promise. He's going to leave the geographic will of God. He's lied to his father and he's, his brother wants to murder him. And uh, he has this dream in Bethel where he sees Jacob's ladder, verses 10 through 17. And it's remarkable. We have the unconditional covenant here. Given to Abraham, confirmed to Isaac, now reconfirmed to Jacob. I am the Lord in verse 13. The God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. Okay, after this, he's going to become the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But for now, he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac. He's confirming the covenant now to Jacob. 
even though Jacob's carnal, fleeing the will of God, leaving the geographic will. I will, I will, I will. Verse 15, I am with you. And I will keep you wherever you go, you knucklehead. And I will bring you back to this land. Not because you deserve it, but because I made promises to Abraham and confirmed them to Isaac. And I selected you rather than Esau. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. See, it's based upon God's unconditional promises, not based upon what man might do. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely Jehovah is in this place. I did not know it. Well, dummy, you should have known it. If you were in fellowship, if you were not fleeing the will of God, you could have had a, an awareness of God's dealings in your life. But then I also want you to see something. After he says, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And so it's named Bethel, house of God, and uh, the gate of heaven and so forth. And he builds a little altar here, a little pillar, names it Bethel. Okay? A lot better than Luz in verse 19. You know, we have all these churches now named Bethel Baptist, Bethel Bible, Bethel Methodist, Bethel. Can you imagine all those churches named Luz? Whatever. Now, I want you to see something here in verse 20 because this is so staggering. Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me. Well, wait a minute. He just said he would. In verse 15, he said, behold, I am with you. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. These are the unconditional promises of God. And now Jacob's taking a vow saying, well, okay, if God is, will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear. Just the gimme, 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 take care of me approach. And I return to my father's house in safety. Then Jehovah will be my Elohim. <laughs> it's almost like he's, uh, you know, considering God now as his intern for the time being. And if your performance measures up after a trial period, then all right, I will uh, slide you permanently into that slot and you can be my Elohim from that point forward. You realize how miracle dependent, sign dependent, what are you doing for me lately dependent Jacob is becoming here? This is a tragic expression of no faith, saying that if you do all this stuff for me, then I'll walk in faith, then I'll believe you, then I'll serve you, blah, blah, blah. Okay? Is it any wonder then that the the nation that descends from Jacob, the race that is launched from Jacob, the 12 sons, the 12 tribes, the people then that come from the loins of Jacob are those that seek for a sign. Unless you people see a sign, you simply will not believe. I find this to be an interesting pattern. No, it's not about what have you done for me. Because it should be, our Christian way of life should be totally irrelevant as far as what has God done? As Job says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It doesn't matter if he's given, if he's taken away. Whatever God's doing, he is still worthy of worship. His name is still blessed by virtue of his character, who he is. Not dependent upon if he's given me anything lately, I'll serve him if he gives me something. Or he's taken away, so I'm going to write him off. That's what Satan thought. Satan said, you know, touch all that he has, he'll surely curse you to your face. And Job says, no, no, no. Lord gives, Lord takes away. His name is blessed under both circumstances. So Job had an understanding of these things. Jacob fell short and the Jewish people fall short as a rule. And uh, 
Christ is exasperated by virtue of this, and the, state, the statement here in verse 48 is rather telling. We want to learn from this as well and make sure that our service to God is not dependent upon what he's doing for us. Because that's, the, that's what I call the leech, the person that just wants to get stuff out of God. And so long as he keeps getting, well, okay, fine, I'll still play the religious game. So, Jesus leaves those that want to do something to him in Judea. He flees through the Samaritan region and he arrives in Galilee. And now all of a sudden he's embraced by those who want something from him. Okay? And this uh, transition from Judah to Galilee then becomes rather interesting. But the Basilicos is not letting go. The Basilicos would not abandon his prayer urgency until he received a direct answer. Once the answer was given, though, he rested in faith. And we find, it's interesting, even though Christ rebuked you people in plural, this man doesn't give up. This individual doesn't give up. All right? And it turns out that he is not as miracle dependent as the crowds necessarily were, as Christ was indicating, because rather than insist on seeing the sign with his own eyes, he accepts the promise by faith and he goes home. So let's look at verses 49 and 50. The royal official, the Basilicos, said to him, Sir, Kyrios, Lord, come down before my child dies. This is urgent. And he's not letting go. See, he doesn't react to the rebuke. Just like the woman at the well did not react when Jesus says, uh, you know, you're sure right, you don't have a husband. You've had five and you've got, you're working on number six right now and you haven't married any of these guys. All right. She took that message and she didn't react in anger. She didn't react in fear. She didn't. She just humbled herself and said, man, here's a prophet. He knows everything about me. And she responded on the basis of faith because the, she recognized his function as a prophet. Likewise, this man, he could very easily get offended when Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. This basilicos could say, oh, well, then fine. Who do you think you are? Okay, then. No. He continues to make the request. He repeats the request. He clings. He doesn't let go. And here is where we find the other side of Jacob. Whereas a moment ago we were looking at Jacob as he was leaving Canaan. Now we have a picture of Jacob as he's returning to Canaan. And that's the pattern of the, of the Jacob in faith that will not let go of the Lord until he gets his answer. All right? So join me there. Genesis chapter 32. All right? And wrestling with the angel. Now he's on his way back into Canaan. Now... He has an understanding, although he's still going to have some fear and he's going to he's, he's terrified of what Esau is going to do. He also realizes that God has been gracious and God is giving him blessings upon blessings upon blessings that he does not deserve. And when he was in Haran, he got out Jacobed by Laban and time and time and time again and really learned lessons the hard way that Jacob needed to quit being such a Jacob. And um, he's wrestling with the Lord here in verse 24. It says, a man wrestled with him until daybreak, but this is not just any ordinary man. This is the angel of the Lord appearing in a pre-incarnation Christophany. And the wrestling and wrestling, and, and when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him, but he's still not letting go. 
Length of time is, should not be a discouragement. Personal injury should not be a discouragement. No matter how long the prayer request takes, we keep praying. No matter how hurt we become, we keep praying. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He's not going to let go until he gets the answer. And he said to me, what is your name? And he said, Jacob, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. He gets his new name in the consequence of this event. And then Jacob says, please tell me your name. Why is it you've asked my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. So we've got the, the principle of Bethel while he was leaving Canaan. Now the principle of Peniel while he's returning to Canaan. And both of these events, separated by some 20 years in time, both of these events, the, the imagery and the teachings and the allusions of these events are coming into play now when we look at John chapter 4. I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. So we have this as a pattern and Jesus teaches elsewhere. We'll get into this when he gives parables of prayer that we're not to let go. We are to keep nagging like the woman with the unrighteous judge. We are to keep going and knocking on that door. We are to continue to make these things a matter of prayer. But once the answer is given, we have to accept the answer for what it is. All right. We don't keep on nagging, nagging and asking, and asking, hoping that, that the answer will change. Once the answer is given, we take that by faith. All right. So, see, Balaam is the example of someone who got the answer, but then didn't like it. So he goes back again and again and saying, no, are you sure I can't curse these people? I really want to cash in on this paycheck. So, but once we get the answer, we accept it for what it is. And that's what this nobleman here does. He said, the royal official said to him, sir, come down now before my child dies. Okay. So. In these verses, it's interesting, we have the, the, the imagery of Bethel. Unless you see signs, you simply will not believe. But then we have the imagery of Peniel, because this Basilicos is not giving up until he gets the answer. Sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus says to him, go, your son lives. And the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. All right, application of faith. Does not need to witness the miracle. Application of faith. God said it. I believe it. All right. We walk by faith, not by sight. If we're confusing what we've seen or what we've experienced with God's workings, we're in trouble. See, this is where the charismatic churches are in a whole lot of trouble. This is where believers that are caught up in the need for experiences are in a lot of trouble. Because if they don't feel holy and spiritual, then in their mind, they're not holy and spiritual. If they're not experiencing tongues and hallucinations and all this other experiential garbage, then there's something wrong with them. And so they whip themselves up into more and more frenzies so that they can have these events, experiences, feelings. All right. And we know they're not biblical feelings. We know they're not normal Christian way of life events. Now. Once the answer is given, he rested in faith. He believed the word that Jesus had spoken to him and started off. But now, in verse 53, once the, the miracle is validated, we have another statement of belief where he himself believed and his whole household. And some people get really concerned about, well, when did he believe? Did he believe in verse uh, 50? Or did he believe in verse 53? 
Okay, how can we have belief here listed twice? Well, because he believed when the promise was first stated. But then when he had it confirmed, he has the opportunity once again to not only communicate that faith, but to have that faith reaffirmed and to share that faith with his whole household to lead them to Christ. Okay, based upon the faith he had now, the faith that he has confirmed now, the faith that he can share with his family. Okay, we have we have times and times and times again, and we we did an exercise in this where we found time and time and time again disciples believing, and we'd be in a lot of trouble if we uh, couldn't you know, if we tr- tried to peg when the uh, disciples became regenerate, born again uh, believers, based upon the, the last time and we find them uh, under a statement of belief. Okay. And um, we did this in a previous in a previous class, and I don't have those present notes with me. But time and time and time again, we have believing, and and um, the one that I can find quite simply is in chapter twenty of John and elsewhere, where this faith then. Uh, continues to be manifest with the fact that they don't understand some of the things that uh, Thomas in chapter 20 is saying, unless I see the, uh, the, in his hands the imprints of the nails, put my finger in the place of the nails, I will not believe. And then uh, Christ tells him in verse 27, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And then verse 29, because you've seen me, do you believe? Blessed are they who did not see and believe. And so, you know, we have multiple instances of belief. You and I will have multiple instances of faith. Obviously, we're going to have believing episodes beyond the point where we were converted to Christ. We're going to continue to walk by faith. We're saved by faith, but now we walk by faith. We're going to continue to experience faith, believing events in the uh, outworking of our Christian walk. So the Basilicos would not abandon his prayer urgency until he received a direct answer the parable for this is luke 18 luke 18 the parable for this when he gave them parables on prayer and the widow that kept keeps coming and coming and coming and finally uh, the uh, unrighteous judge says even though i do not fear god or respect man because this widow bothers me i will give her legal protection otherwise by continually coming she will wear me out (laughs) you ever feel worn out well this is a biblical phrase and this is the pattern verse one he jesus christ was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart so the problem is is that we lose heart and we quit praying we pray but then time goes by and we think well god's not going to answer so we lose heart or we pray and we find our hip socket gets injured and now it hurts so we lose heart now, the pattern is keep wrestling, keep wrestling, don't let go. Here it is, keep bothering this unrighteous judge. And that, verses 1 through 8 in Luke 18, is given as a positive example for how prayer is to be exercised that we do not lose heart. But once the answer is given, you rest by means of faith. Finally, point seven, the Samaritan's faith response motivated them to remain with Jesus for two full days. But the Basilicos' faith response motivated him to immediately leave the Lord and evangelize his entire house. What a difference. 
In chapter, we, we saw previously a faith response on the part of the Samaritans where they responded by faith and then they asked him to stay for two full days and they spent time with him and they wanted to keep learning and they all these things. Well, the Basilicos was just the opposite. He got his answer to prayer, executed an immediate about face and marched on out of there. Okay. Both were faith responses. The Samaritan's faith response motivated them to remain with Jesus for two full days. That was verses 40 through 43. But the Basilicos, his faith response motivated him to immediately leave the Lord and evangelize the entire house. They both were responding on the basis of faith. And yet the follow through was entirely different in both cases. All right. And this becomes an interesting pattern as well for us to glean and and learn from um, so much goes back to Ecclesiastes three, where there's a time for everything under the sun and believers walking by means of faith may find themselves in different circumstances. And that's called divine guidance. And we um, want to be very, slow to uh to be judgmental with respect to a believer as he applies his faith to say well what are you doing that for that's not what i that's not what i would do okay probably isn't what you would do but it's what he's doing and he's doing it on the basis of faith so you know were the samaritans wrong for latching on to him for two full days You know, they were asking him to stay with them in verse 40. Were they wrong for doing that? Or should they have just simply accepted the gospel by faith, said, okay, you're the Christ, see you later? Stop by again some other time when you're passing through town? No, they said, stay here for two more days, we want to learn. He stays with them. And many more believed because of his word. And because he stayed, more were led to Christ. All right? But this Basilicos doesn't stay doesn't follow Christ from, from Cana to Nazareth, but he rather goes down to Capernaum. And there he leads others to Christ. Okay? So by virtue of staying with Jesus, the Samaritans led others to Christ. By virtue of leaving Jesus, the Basilicos leads others to Christ. You seen how this contrast works? I think we want to be very careful in terms of uh, observing faith responses. And what are people led to do on the basis of faith? This man was led to uh, not, you know, not become a disciple, not, not leave his service to Herod, not abandon any of these other things and go follow after Jesus. But he was motivated to go back to Capernaum, stay in his official royal capacity, lead others to Christ. And who's to say that some of these members of the royal household were not uh, Susanna? the wife of Chusa, or uh, these uh, folks that we saw in uh, the book of Acts, Acts 13, Manan was the man's name there. All right. Now, the miracle is confirmed. He didn't need the miracle. He believed and started off. Verse 51, as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. And then they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. It was the very time that Jesus had declared, your son lives. That very same hour, the very next day. Remember, you don't just hop into your Mustang and drive back 20 miles to, uh, to Capernaum. 
This is a full day's travel, maybe a day and a half, maybe two days, if the weather's bad, the roads aren't clear, and so forth. Even with the Roman roads, 20 miles, 25 miles would be a couple of days. You know, 15 miles is a good ballpark. If you make 15 miles in a day, you've done pretty good. Stop for the night, water your animals, feed your animals, and so forth. Um, travel in the ancient world is nothing. I, we're, we're spoiled <laughs> in our, uh, in our uh, circumstances. Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And this would have been 7 p.m. if we're following the Roman time system, or it would be 1 o'clock in the afternoon if we're following the Jewish time system. It's not totally clear, but either way, because the time synchronized with the time the previous day, the man had confirmed that the miracle took place immediately when Jesus said the word. And he said the word in Cana, but the miracle was effected in Capernaum. So he himself believed and his whole household. See, he's able to give now a witness to the household because they didn't know why it was that all of a sudden out of the blue, the fever was gone. The kid got better. Okay. But he's able to tell them, well, it's because at that very moment, back in Cana, Jesus of Nazareth declared that he was well. And it happened. So this is, again, a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. And much like the first sign, how many people knew this took place? A limited number. You know, the servants that knew that it was water in the jugs and that knew that it was wine in the jugs. How did they go from water to wine? Well, a handful of people knew that a miracle took place. Jesus knew, his mother knew, his disciples knew, the, the servants knew, but almost nobody else. And likewise here, in terms of your son lives, who knows this? Well, the man, the noble, the Basilicos knows it. The son comes to know it. The other servants come to know it. But not very many beyond that. All right. The, uh, the miracles in the Galilean ministry, this period of the life of Christ is going to have more miracles than any other. Most of the miracles, walking on water, feeding 5,000, casting out demons, raising folks from the dead, most of the miracles that Jesus performs is going to be here in the Galilean ministry. All right. But they're not the point. They were designed to produce the divine credentials so that people would listen to the message. We often say it's not the man, it's the message. Back then they would say it's not the miracle, it's the message. Okay? The miracle is the divine credentials. The, the fact that God is with you, we better pay attention to what you're saying. The Pharisees testified to that in John chapter 3. We know you have come as a teacher sent from God, for no one can do these miracles you do unless God is with him. The Pharisees knew that. Nicodemus confessed that, which makes their rebellion that much more grievous because they knew the full impact of what it was they were doing. All right, let's give you an introduction. We've got 12 minutes remaining. The rejection at Nazareth, Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. Before we... Progress now from John 4 to John 5. In our harmony of the Gospels, we have other events to deal with. As a matter of fact, if you look at your harmony, you will observe that in the Gospel of John, which is that far right-hand column, the first of the Galilean ministry events is, number one, healing of the nobleman's son. That's the first one there for John, John 4, 46-54. And then before we move on to John chapter 5, that's all the way down in event number 12. 
And in between event number one and event number 12 are then these 10 other events. Two through 11. All right. Numbers two through 11. Rejected at Nazareth, moved to Capernaum. The four become fishers of men. A demoniac healed. Peter's mother-in-law healed. The first preaching tour. The leper healed. The paralytic healed. The call of Matthew, the tax collector. The defending of the disciples via parable. Those ten events all happen in between John chapter 4 and John chapter 5. And they're all covered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. Okay. This is why we recognize that the, the synoptic gospels were written first. They were written fairly early in the first century of the church. John was written as the fourth and final gospel to give the additional material that were not covered in the synoptics. Also to give the full uh, revelation of the Father through the deity of Jesus Christ. So you'll observe these long, in that right-hand column, you'll observe long gaps Long stretches in between events recorded in the Gospel of John, like we have here, is a long gap. And then we will find oftentimes when there are events recorded in John, then in those columns to the left of John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we're going to have blanks. Because the material there is unique to John, not recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so... uh, Circumstances there are simply observed when you go through a harmony and you find the uh, the patterns for what they are. Now, rejected a Nazareth. Let's, let's go back to Luke chapter four. And uh, without the Gospel of John, we wouldn't know anything about the uh, the first cleansing of the temple, the first uh, the calling of the initial disciples, the co-ministry with John the Baptist, the events that we've been looking at up till now, because we'd be looking at, okay, well, here's the temptation of Jesus in uh, 1 through 13, and then Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread throughout the surrounding district. And so, uh, again, when you look at your harmony, you look at the events of the Gospel of Luke, where we leave off in... uh, Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, then there's a huge gap until we get back to the Gospel of Luke again, where he leaves for Galilee, where he returns to Galilee, where he's rejected in Nazareth. All of those items there in between, we wouldn't even know about if we were just dependent upon the, or limited to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic Gospels. All right? And, in particular, it gives us an understanding with respect to these first six disciples and uh, the fact that they were with him early, they were with him in Judea, they were with him as he traveled through Samaria, they uh, went into the Samaritan city, Shechem, to our sea car to buy food. But then when they reach Galilee now, it seems that they've disappeared. All right. They get back into Galilee and uh, they are dismissed, so to speak. They go back to their fishing business. They go back to their careers and so forth. And uh, there will be an event coming up here where he calls them and says, all right, now, um, you've uh, you've been with me on a part-time basis. You now need to follow on a full-time basis. And he calls them to be fishers of men, and they will leave their uh, secular careers permanently. And that's coming up here also. All right, chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through all the surrounding District And he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. 
All right. And this is going to be of all the regions of Galilee, um, whether we're talking about Cana, we're talking about Capernaum, or we're talking about Nain, where the widow's son was raised at Nain. That was a Galilee uh, uh, setting. All the other places where he goes in uh, Chorazin, all these other places in Galilee, um, he had wide acceptance because he was a Galilean. They were Galileans. But within the scope of the Galileans were the Nazarenes. Those actually from Nazareth. Those from his hometown. Okay? It'd be like all the Austinites, all the Houstonites, all the San Antonians, all of the Dallas sites, whatever Fort Worthian is called. All right. The uh, El Paso is whatever. Um, we're all Texans by virtue of being from these individual cities. They would all be rightly identified as Texans. But then within the branch of Texans, there are the very particular individual towns. OK, so we've got Galileans at large, very positive, very accepting. Nazarenes in particular get mad. And that happens in this passage. At first, they're stunned. At first, they're amazed. They don't know what to say because the teaching is so powerful. The teaching has such power and such grace. And they can't get over the fact that this is uh, this is Jesus, the son of Joseph. You know, they can't get over the fact that who does this carpenter think he is? Okay. And every time he comes back to town, this gets brought up, not only here, but in Matthew 13 and Mark chapter six. Every time he comes through Nazareth, it's, oh, there goes, uh, there's Joseph's son. There's the carpenter's son. There's the carpenter. Who does he think he is? Okay. And uh, they do not get over the fact that um, he is the carpenter. That's who he is. And in their local politics, in their local um, pecking order, in their local pride, um, they resent what he's become. So, uh, he returns to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. News about him spread throughout the surrounding district. And he began teaching in their synagogues. That's plural. That's district. That's all the different locations with all of their synagogues. It was praised by all. But when he comes to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, as was his custom, he enters the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stands up to read. And here he's going to get a response unlike anywhere else in Galilee. And... Um, it says in verse 22, all were speaking well of him, wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son's son? Is this not Joseph's son? OK, now. They were dazzled by the words. They were gracious words. In their estimation, they were powerful words being spirit filled. They were unlike any they'd ever heard before. We're going to see in the Matthew and Luke and Mark. Uh, not quite parallel accounts that when they contrasted the words of Jesus with the words of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, there was no comparison because the spirit provided power, provided authority, and the teaching was like night and day. But here they're amazed at the gracious words falling from his lips. OK, that's a bit poetic, but it describes what they were dazzled with. Not the content of information coming forth, but the manner in which they fell from his lips. You know, we think about 
language like in Proverbs, like in Song of Solomon, like, you know, your lips drip honey, like the it's the it's the manner of his eloquence. People get impressed with preachers because of their diction. All right. The, their presentation, their style, their flair. How the words drip off their lips, how they can mesmerize an audience, how they can just keep you gripped and entertained and captivated. And people get dazzled by the performance. With respect to the message itself, the content of information, eh, you know. But it's such a great performance. Well, dripping off his lips, falling from his lips, and they're stunned. Is this not Joseph's son? Wow, look at this carpenter. Look at how he teaches. Look at how he presents himself. Then he gives another message. See, the first one came from Isaiah. Then he's going to start talking about Elijah and Elisha. And he's uh, going to get very insulting. Well, now all of a sudden, these words aren't dripping like honey from his lips. Now all of a sudden, them's fighting words. Okay. Well, wait a minute. It's the same Jesus, same lips. What do you do? Why is it that you, you were liking those lips earlier in verse 22, but now all of a sudden, they're filled with rage in verse 28 as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city, led, them to the, led him to the brow of the hill, and their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Okay? If you go to Israel today, they'll take you to this cliff and this part of the tour. They'll show you this cliff, this precipice by Nazareth, and they'll let you, you know, take pictures and so forth. Well, this very same lips <laughs> that had been teaching them from Isaiah, saying, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Then he turns to Elijah and Elisha saying, you guys better shape up. They don't like that. Okay, so that gives us a taste. We will uh, deal with this rejection one week from today. Lord willing, rapture pending. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.